Pastor? Go for it. Go for it? All right. All right. Well, why don't we, I'll, I'll start us with a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. Dear Lord, uh, we come to you, and we, we give you all praise for your word, um, for the book of Psalms, which we've had the privilege of studying uh, all summer long. Um, we find such amazing things about you, about your Messiah, as we'll read today, um, about your mighty works and um, how all praise is due to you. Um, we pray that uh, that would be the focus of, of our study this morning, that we would glorify you for your mighty acts. And we, we ask your spirit would go with us and bless us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So I don't know if we as believers are able to, we can say this is our favorite psalm and those kinds of things. Are we allowed to say this is the best psalm? I kinda, that's kind of how I feel a little bit about this. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that or not. But judging by some measures, um, it, was the, it was the most popular psalm among all the New Testament writers inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course, when they looked at the Old Testament and they were quoting the Old Testament to give meaning to what was happening in the in the time of the New Testament. So uh, on that fact alone, there's a, there's a lot of weight to this psalm. So, um, I, well, let me ask the kids before, on that point there. So I just said, this uh, psalm is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Do you think that's very meaningful, that fact? What do you think? If my kids were here, I could look at another row there, but, you know, you guys are pretty much it, so sorry. So you think, yeah? I saw Neil. Neil, any thoughts on why? Why is that meaningful? That the New Testament quotes this psalm so many times, the most of all. No pressure. All right, someone help him out. What's meaningful about that? Should we, should we draw anything from that fact? All right, we got a college student getting poked back here. What, what, would you, what would you take from that fact? Yeah, particularly, and, and actually that kind of brings up a good point about how I structured this teaching. It's a little bit all mixed in. Um, I didn't end up saying here's kind of what the old, you know, how maybe they would have taken the Old Testament and now Later, let's talk about, um, you know, what the New Testament writer said. It's kind of all mixed in here as we go through, because it just seems the points are right on the nose about everything we know about the Messiah now 2,000 years uh, after Christ. And it's hard to, to see these um, and talk about them without uh, pulling that part out. Um, and for everyone that's come in so far, there's some handouts out there if you didn't get them, and there's a few extra ones on the chair halfway down here. So make sure you grab a couple, there's plenty of handouts. Um, okay, so, and, and it's actually quoted, it's not just like one verse that's quoted one time in one context. Pieces throughout the whole psalm are quoted to make a variety of points. Before we read, at, read it, or maybe just kind of glancing, you know, from your memory or glancing it, do you remember some of the, the different kinds of points? That are, that are made in, uh, in the New Testament from this psalm. Just call it out. Ruler. That the Messiah will be a ruler. Very much so, yeah. Same thing. You guys are on the same page. That's good. Anything else? Tim? 
Yeah, we will talk about that. That's hugely important. The priesthood, uh, according to the order of Melchizedek. Yeah, the, the, uh, what Christ and the Messiah will be doing in the reign, how, it'll be reign, uh, how he will uh, reign. All right. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So isn't that fascinating? Here we have, just in this one relatively short psalm, we have this point Jesus himself makes um, about, uh, you know, who the Messiah is, the kind of high... The, the high and lifted up name of the Messiah, uh, about the rule that he will have, about a priesthood. So just a ton packed into the psalm. So you can kind of see maybe why I, why I uh, chose it. Um, the last thing I'd say before we read it is this is a psalm of David. How do we know it's a psalm of David? It says, it says Psalm of David, and if you were a critical scholar and that wasn't enough for you, well, I don't know if this would do it too, but you have, like the pastor just said, um, uh, Christ himself talking about this being written uh, by David in the spirit. So for all, for all Christians, if the Old Testament, of course, you know, the Old Testament is enough and those, those titles are also in, included in the uh, original writings of the, of the Psalms as well. A Psalm of David and then Jesus himself making a key point about the uh, authorship of this psalm. So um, with that by way of background, why don't we um, go ahead and read it, and then we'll, then we'll jump into it. So turn to Psalm 110, and it's also, if you've got the handout for those that have come in, there's handouts there on the table outside and handouts halfway up on, the, on my right side here. Um, and they have on the back of it um, a printout of the whole psalm as well. So Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. All right. So going to break up the, the basic sections we'll cover today in one through three, where there's this promise of a ruler and then uh, we'll handle verse 4 just on its own, talking about the priesthood uh, according to Melchizedek, because that's such a unique section. And then lastly, in 5 through 7, talking about the nature of this reign. That might be a little bit cheating, because you get some of the nature of the reign in the first verses too, but that's the, the basic structure. Um, so let's just start with uh, verses 1 to 3 here. Um, it says, as the pastor already said, um, the Lord says to my Lord, um, okay, so first, key thing that makes sense of what Jesus was saying there, are these words of Lord the same? In, in our English here, 
we read, the Lord says to my Lord. Is that what the psalmist wrote? Got a no? Do you want to expand on your no? There you go, there you go. All right, someone's using their handout. That's good, that's good. And I know you knew that on your own as well. So, yeah, and even in the, um, the Greek Septuagint, the, the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament, it, there had already been a, um, a changing of that, uh, the, the word for Yahweh that we say. I don't, we don't, no one totally knows how to pronounce that, that word. You can see it there in Hebrew with the, the four H's in English, the, the word right to the left of that is the Hebrew. It wouldn't have had those dots and that little T-looking thing um, in, the, in the oldest Hebrew manuscripts. Those are added to help with the reading. Um, but, uh, but so that is the, the name of the Lord. And the Jews, we don't know when, sometime, sometime way back had, I think probably a misinterpretation of some passages uh, um, talking about restricting how we would speak the name of the Lord had developed a tradition where they wouldn't say that name, and you already see that in the Septuagint, I think, where there's this, uh, essentially, the, also this, the same stuff we see in the New Testament, the Greek, where the word there is kurios, twi twice. So the, for us, the English translates that pretty well, translates that Septuagint and that New Testament pretty well. The Lord said to my Lord, that's, that's faithful. But we don't get the, the um, sense of the original Hebrew there where it's this Yahweh, this, uh, this name of the, the, covenant, um, uh, the covenant name of the one true God. Um, he says to my Adonai, to my Lord. Um, so that, that's what we see. And then, um, okay, question. The pastor kind of already uh, helped you here. But still, so I'm going to go to the youth here. Um, let's see. Do you remember what point Jesus makes from the address of the Lord to my Lord? It might be remembering from five minutes ago, or it might be remembering from your own study. Youth first. Youth first. I'm asking a question of the youth. But if they don't get it, then we will go to the elder. Elder Rob. What point you're allowed to do an exact quote of what the pastor said before if you were paying attention? What is Jesus saying? Maybe we should read, why don't we read uh, Matthew, someone read Matthew 22. Uh, well, let's, someone read Luke chapter 20, 42 to 43 for us. This is recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Just call it out if you got it.
Yeah, that last part especially. Yeah, good job. So he calls him Lord, but how is he his son? Elder Rob, you are going to uh, make a point on this. What's Jesus? Why is he asking that question? Yeah. How so? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and he's also, you know, maybe uh, expanding this, their scope of what the Messiah is. There was definitely this focus that you see over and over on this um, this kind of. Uh, of course, the Messiah is Jewish, but a very nationalistic Jewish um, uh, kind of king who would come and deliver them from the Romans um, in that kind of constrained scope kind of way. Um, one of the guys I was reading, just happened to be reading this week for a, for a, a class of mine, um, Ritterboss in the Kingdom of God, makes a lot of how what J Jesus is doing, if you recall the, um, the Daniel 7 uh, uh, prophecy, the vision of uh, the Son of Man, where the Son of Man um, approaches the Ancient of Days, and he's given this, this kingdom. And it's this very, you know, high and lifted up view of the Son of Man. Of course, we know the Son of Man was one of Jesus' favorite ways to refer to himself. And so he's connecting Psalm 110 um, to that, that kind of concept of what the Messiah is. He's not just this kind of... Uh, David's son in the sense that he's going to have a reign like David that is over this national Israel, but it's much more expanded than that. It imbues, it, it used this high and lifted up one being called up before the throne room of God and executing a, um, a reign over all, over all the earth, a much more universal and uh, reign by a much more high and lifted up um, king than just this mere man that, that would come. Um, so fascinating um, the way Jesus makes, and, and I think another good point to make from this is um, how uh, big a point you can make from seemingly small things in the scripture. Um, now, you can take that the wrong way, right, and blow something totally out of proportion, but we also see this multiple times in the New Testament in particular, where there's a citation or a quote or a reference to an Old Testament passage and a, and a really fundamental theological point is made from a rather small turning. And so we see that the way that God's word is so powerful. And um, I think that encourages us to really um, uh, to get everything we can uh, and to really study uh, the word in that way to where we're hanging on even sometimes tenses of, of words uh, and here a very small portion. Okay. Um, any other thoughts on that first part? On just the, the Lord says to my Lord. All right. So um, let's look at the content of what Yahweh says. Um, he says, sit at, the right, sit at my right hand. Um, so what is promised here when he says, sit at my right hand? Sit at my right hand and what? Or, Sorry. Yeah, making enemies a footstool. So absolute destruction of the Messiah's enemies. That, that picture um, is, is absolute dominion over, over his enemies. Um, what, 
what is assumed with this Messiah sitting at the right hand? What is, what is assumed about the Messiah? How did he get there? Yeah, so that builds, and I think that's where, you know, Jesus in particular connecting this psalm, you know, it wasn't just the Lord said to my Lord, it's things like that, like Tim just pointed out. So there's this um, uh, status, uh, divine status of, of who this Messiah is. But still, how did he get there? This is kind of, this happens in a certain time, and we'll talk about the time in a second. Um, did he sit at the right hand while he was there reigning from Jerusalem, or where and when does this happen, or what's assumed in this, to sit at my right hand? What's that? Yeah, so that, and sorry, I'm probably trying to like get you guys too, too specific to a, to a thing. Something simple that, you know, is perhaps more profound as we pass over is, it starts to, you can start to get things like the ascension you know, uh, and, and those things, which certainly the, the um, apostles built on that in, in the ascension. But it's fascinating to think back, if you didn't have the ascension that you saw in New Testament, what are the things, these are questions you might ask. Well, how is the Messiah going to be sitting at the right hand of God? Um, and it even gets to that, you know, where we see in other Psalms, you won't allow your Holy One to see corruption. Like, could these kind of things be put together of this, uh, more eternal aspect of, of this uh, Messiah who is to come. Um, what do you make from this sit at my right hand about a relationship between the Father and this Messiah? Ronnie. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll talk about that for sure here in a second. For a right-hand man, are they generally, um, uh, you know, in discord or in unity? Very much unity, right? So we see here this absolute connection between what the Father is doing and what the Messiah is doing. Jay. Yeah. Yeah. Is that what you were going to say, Rob? Yeah, yeah that's a great, a great comment, um, that they are kind of this picture of in the family. And um, I certainly this whole passage, including what Jesus makes of it, is supportive of Trinitarian theology. We wouldn't say we'd have a full-orbed trinity out of um, this passage, but there's a lot. Um, this would be key things in building, building up that, that theological case. Um, Let's see, let's go on. Well, one more question. How doth Christ execute the office of a king? By waiting? All right. That was Westminster's Shorter Catechism, question 26. I just thought it was a nice random one to throw in there because it's so relevant here. Let me read it. Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself and ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. Does that sound familiar at all? Uh, not just because you've read the catechism, but you just read Psalm 110. I just thought that was kind of a fascinating thing. 
Yeah. Yeah, there, well, and we'll see the, um, we'll, we'll see both in, involved here, but certainly the, the next thing we read in this uh, verses two to three here is Yahweh is wielding the scepter of the Messiah's rule. So sit at my right hand, and then he's wielding the scepter. So there's this, uh, this very much so, this, this relationship and the, the father doing this um, amazing, um, powerful uh, acts. Cynthia. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Um, you know, I, I think between this and this one and Psalm 2 are kind of among the most of that, a coronation-like kind of, kind of uh, psalm, for sure. Um, what, we're going to come back to kind of the nature of the rain, but here within this uh, section, where is this rule happening? Is this, and is it um, unquestioned? How do, how do you read that in, in verses two and three? I should keep my psalm in front of me. Look in verse two, the bottom of verse two. Yeah, and my, my, my question of where probably doesn't help there. That's certainly true, and that's a good point to be made. I think it's fascinating, too, that it is um, in the midst of your enemies, right? There's this sense that you start to hear here that this is not this bam, done, no questioning, you know, this kind of single drop kind of thing, and it's done, right? There's a rule in the midst of enemies. And you see a lot of times in the New Testament, a passage we'll go to in a second, where there is this kind of progressive type of uh, uh, ruling that's happening, which is kind of assumed in this idea of in the midst of enemies. Um, because if all the enemies are going to be put under his feet and he's ruling in the midst of enemies, that assumes that there's a progressive um, defeating and overturning of enemies o over time. Um, and we, we read that the, these um, uh, servants of Yahweh will prevent, pre they'll present themselves essentially as uh, the language is kind of like a, uh, a free will offering, very much almost like a sacrificial kind of context. And, uh, and in the, um, I'm trying to think of how it was worded here, uh, in holy garments is a kind of a, challenging Hebrew, uh, the scholars that interpret that have different, um, different um, understandings, but something uh, connoting like uh, in these uh, beautiful festal garments, and then also there's a uh, um, interpretation where it's a translation where it's on holy mountains. So um, uh, kind of different, different senses there of what that's getting at, the, the uh, language is, is challenging. One other uh, uh, area where, the, where I struggled a bit with the, um, uh, the meaning was where it gets to the dew of your youth. Um, 
What's your, what's your sense of that? From the womb of the morning, this is the bottom of verse 3, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Well, there you go. So we, we could all be, uh, yeah. Any thoughts from anyone that studied this at all? I've got a, I went directly to some of the big guns here that I'll, I'll bring out uh, when, when even the ESV interpreter's like, well, this is kind of hard to understand. I'm like, yeah. Um, I'm not seeing any takers. So. Yeah, I think that's well said. Um, and you see some of that, I think, particularly, and I've got two uh, commenters here. One is Calvin and one is Derek Kidner, and I think Kidner is a little more in that direction. Um, Calvin interprets the dew as, uh, he takes a meaning from the, the wideness of where the dew spreads. Um, so he interprets it as a newborn or youth of the kingdom spreading over the whole earth like dew in great numbers. And then uh, Derek Kidner says, this is the Messiah going forth in primal vigor, holiness and glory at the head of a host which is dedicated, uh, which is as dedicated as those early Israelites who jeopardized their lives to the death, quoting Judges uh, 5.18. The Christian can identify such an army with the overcomers portrayed in Revelation 12.11, little as he may recognize himself and his fellows in either picture. I like that, particularly that how we ought to um, identify ourselves and can't identify ourselves in that throng that sometimes it's hard when we look at ourselves and we're too inward focused to see ourselves in that number. Um, anything else? Yes, sir. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Just to talk about the 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 time indicators that are here, and um, there's kind of a aesthetic beauty in the way they are. There's and also a kind of a a vagueness that is in Hebrew poetry, oftentimes associated with it. Yes, sir. Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, certainly we know some of the images of creation bound up with Messiah's reign are um, particularly a new creation, which wouldn't make sense without the, the first creation, but this sense of restoration and newness, um, I think in particular, that kind of creation, you know, that God's doing, which, which is associated with the Messiah for sure. So, yeah, that's, that's great. All right. Let's, let's move on, actually kind of building on uh, Scott's comment there about time. Um, what, would, what might we be able to understand about the timing of the Messiah's rule uh, from this text? So if you just kind of restricted yourself, you are David or his contemporaries or someone else uh, down before Christ came, what, are you, what would be the timing that you could maybe get from this? Or what would be some time indicators? Even if you look to the future, not that you knew, hey, the Messiah is going to come and, you know, uh, 500 years from now, not, not that kind of question, but are there event indicators associated with the Messiah that you can pick out from this? Kind of hinted at some of those before. Like, like where is the Messiah? Again, I'm using that, I don't, don't take that so much like geographically in my question of where. Uh, where on the earth or something like that, but where is the Messiah in this, you know, and what might that tell you about a time period in his life? Okay, so sometime after Melchizedek, that's, that's certain. Uh, <laughs> okay, there is a day of wrath that's going to be in the future, and he'll be reigning at some point before that, so that's you know, um, at a minimum, when all the enemies are dis be destroyed, would be there at that day of wrath, Ronnie. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. That's yeah. right, and that maybe this is where it gets challenging, right? And why it's so, um, you know, we know that angels long to look into a lot of these things that have been revealed to us in the gospel time. So, to what extent can you, like, fill up the hey guys in the Old Testament? You need to you know know um, all of these details. Um, that's probably a little bit unfair. Uh, to them that, that don't live on the other side of what we, what's been revealed to us after uh, the coming of the Messiah, obviously. But some of, maybe we've kind of talked about these a little bit already. Yes, sir? Yeah, yeah. Very good, yeah. Well, and so that's answering also, I was going to ask as the next question, what, in light of the New Testament, you know, what do we make of the timing of these things? But that's still, if we kind of scrape off what we knew, what we know from that Hebrews passage, only in him um, having already come and ascended and all that, um, we, it, it seems like we could start to know that there would be something like an ascension, Right, that he's sitting at the the right hand. Well, how does how does that happen? I'm not saying that 
I mean, that's still mi mysterious to us in a lot of ways, but certainly in the Old Testament times there'd be mysterious, but, or mystery, but there's something there that starts to look like an ascension, um, you know, uh, with this idea of sitting at the right hand of God. Um, Tim? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a good point to just tease out a little bit um, real quick. What, what is being taught here with regard to this right hand of God, this um, place of rule? We know the Son of God is eternal. We know he's always been sovereign as God. Is that what's being talked about here, or is it something different? Yeah. Yeah, think, think to back after the resurrection in Matthew 28, when Jesus was sending out the disciples into the, uh, with the, what we know of the Great Commission, what was the whole um, uh, prerequisite, the, the um, prelude to the, the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is the resurrected Christ now, now saying this. So that's kind of a tie to Psalm 110. It's a tie to things like Psalm 2 and, um, and, and other passages from the Old Testament. So there's a certain... In passage like Psalm 110, as much as any, there's this description of this son of man that would rule in this uh, amazing way that kind of, um, like we see in the God-man, that has this um, divine um, presence, but also now takes on this new uh, role in this um, uh, risen, reigning Messiah. And that's what's, what's promised here. There's some more things we could bring in there, but let me, let me bring it, just for sake of time, to the, the, the next part of this, which Landon started. So, okay, so we kind of thought about it. If we didn't know the New Testament, you know, how, how might we think of some of the timing indicators? Now that we know the, the New Testament, and it's, as we said before, the most quoted passage in the New Testament, what do we get about timing and things like that, you know, from the New Testament uh, writers on this one? And, any thoughts on that regard? Trying to remember what my notes told you guys. All right, so I've got some references there without the, the cheat. I have the cheat sheet here that, that reminds me of what those actual references that are there in the questions say. Um, if you look those up or if you recall um, anything, well, what would be your, your first basic answer to the question? Um, I was just... Uh, back back home this week in, in Florida and uh, was seeing re really briefly on the TV a prophecy conference and the um, the preacher was talking about Revel uh, the book of Revelation and um, uh, how, and he was praying and then he prayed after he read the passage and prayed for this time when um, when the, when, when the Lord would reign again, this future time that he is not reigning now. 
Is that the sense you get of this? So he obviously was saying this is a future thing. Is that the New Testament? Is that a faithful New Testament understanding of this? I see a lot of shaking nose. Corey. Hmm, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Amen. Key things. Yes, ma'am. Right, very good. Um, I'm trying to think of what to bring out in some of these passages. Um, any other thoughts before I look? Yes. Where did that come from? Where did that idea come from? Psalm 110? Yeah. <laughs> right, so he, and, and so it's quoting it, saying this has happened. He is sitting at the right hand of God, and he is reigning. And then what does it say is the last enemy to be destroyed? Death, right? And then comes the end. So you can definitely get, I mean, there's a, ver there's a logic uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 that's associated with this, that's really hard to ignore, that Christ, that this, this has happened and that there's this progressive reigning and progressive um, uh, footstool making of the enemies of Christ culminating in the, in the last enemy, which is death. made them sons and daughters, yeah. Yeah, um, and, and even in that, this who, who are his enemies, perhaps, you know, there's a lot that could have been, um, you know, garnered from that in the Old Testament times as well. Is death an enemy? Well, clearly from 1 Corinthians 15, we see that it's the most fundamental of our enemies, um, and that's the underlying um, context to think of the entire scriptures is this enemy of death uh, which God is working to overturn and so 
uh, I think, an astute reader led by the Spirit. That's certainly one of the conclusions to be made at any time reading this psalm. Well, what are my enemies? What are his enemies? You know, and, and that's a powerful, uh, a powerful idea. And we don't often think of, um, we think of like, who's bothering me today? You know, and who am I annoyed at? Which is there, there's some some truth in those things for sure. Um, but really, the most fundamental enemies that we have are unseen enemies, um, both I think in the spiritual realms, and that's certainly, you know, uh, in, in the background here of these um, kind of high treasonous spiritual world um, kind of enemies um, that in the Bible have far more to do with the happenings on earth than we as modern day people like to, like to give credit for. Um, so certainly there in the, in the background, um, and then death itself, you know, this idea that's uh, kind of a, almost a personification of, of death there, but regardless of that question, um, this, this most formidable of all enemies that he's promised to, to destroy. In that sense, you know, we should walk away from this psalm and just be overly joyed that that, you know, in the interpretation of the New Testament is included in the, enemy, in the enemies that Christ is uh, conquering on, on behalf of his people. Yes, sir. Yeah. 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 Yeah, very much so. And we know that in the um in in the next life, you know, there there is no more that wherein righteousness dwells is the description of the, the next world. Um Let's, let me see if there's something else to bring out here. I, I kind of want to just rattle these off real quick. Um, some of these, uh, just kind of a, a quick uh, paraphrase on some of these um, passages that are cited in your notes there. Um, so I say the New Testament answer to this, when is Christ reigning, is now and not yet. Um, and we'll, we can talk about that too. But Acts 2, um, 34 to 36 says, let all Israel therefore know that God has made him Lord and Christ. Hebrews 1, 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Ephesians 1, 20 to 22, when he had raised him from the dead and, and seated, past tense, uh, him at his right hand and put, past tense, all things under his feet. Um, 1 Peter 3, 1, who has gone into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, angels, powers, authorities having been subjected to him. And then, as we talked about 1 Corinthians 15, 24, I won't go into that. Um, let's see, the last passage there, that 1 Corinthians 15, 24, I, I think particularly talks about this not yet. Um, the idea that he is truly reigning now. And, and I, I think... One thing that could be a discouraging thing when we focus on that now as people are like, man, I, you know, uh, am dealing with death. I am dealing with sin. I am dealing with this struggle. That's not, the message is not that that is done and you don't experience those things today. The message is it is as good as done. It's that, it's that down payment essentially that what was promised there, which has a progressiveness built into it, reign in the midst of your enemies. 
It's built in, so we should expect this, but it's also a promised end to it. And so I think that's a really important point to, to bring out there. It's not as though there's this um, uncertainty of the end. The, the, the end of all the enemies being under Christ's feet is certain, and it's happening. And most especially in the death and resurrection of Christ, that was, that was guaranteed. Let me move on to the section two, um, just so we don't miss that, because I, I especially like to cover section two here, which is the promise of the priests in verse four. We see this, the Lord has sworn, and in your notes, if I remember where I had your notes, there's, um, there's a little uh, cheat sheet of the answers there, so I might go through those, except in my tangled mess of my notes here, I can't find... Uh, does anyone have a handout I could borrow? I've got one somewhere here in all my mix. But I want to go through those as you see it. Thanks. And there's, there's still plenty of extra ones there. Um, so I guess first off, who, who is Melchizedek and where do we learn about him? You would think from this passage and the, and the criticality here that... Um, Melchizedek is all over in the Bible. Is that the case? Where do we see Melchizedek? Yep. Yeah. Genesis in the single chapter in Genesis. Psalm 110. Those are the only places in the Old Testament. And then Hebrews uh, makes much of, of uh, Melchizedek. So that's, that's kind of fascinating on its own. Um, so, who is Melchizedek? What do we know about him? He's a priest. What else? He's a king, a priest and a king. And you see that both in the description of him and in his name as well. The, um, he's a um, king of righteousness is, is one thing that, that comes out. Um, and then also... Um, and then he's also described as this priest of God Most High. Um, yes, sir. Uh, yes, and that's part of what Hebrews makes a, a big point of. So there's what, so maybe just jumping down to that. What's the significance of that? If you recall from how Hebrews words that. Who else made ties in a sense through, through that? Do you remember? But the, but the point in Hebrews is not all the Jews. Yeah, it's the other priesthood that's being compared to there. So there's a, there's a um, lesson in the greatness that the, the uh, author of Hebrews is making in, in the, the surpassing greatness of this order of priesthood that even... The Levitical priesthood had to, in the loins of Abraham, figuratively pay uh, tithes um, to Melchizedek, which is a fascinating passage. Um, so we see here, though, in Psalm 110, there's an oath. There's this, you're a priest forever, and the order of Melchizedek. Um, I guess the other thing I meant to say, too, is he's the king of Salem, which, is, uh, which brings in the aspect of peace as well. So there's this righteousness in his name and this Salem, uh, which is what he is, he is king of. Um, 
All right, so let's go down here on, on the question. The, he, the he, Hebrews argues that Jesus, as a priest of the order of Melchizedek, offers a better priesthood. How so? So look there, and that's not on the first one, chapter 7, 7 to 1. I'm told that the um, that uh, uh, quilters, Amish quilter women, that they always leave like one error in all their quilts to make it clear that only, you know, only God is perfect. So I always try to make sure I have errors and at least one error in anything I do there. So, but looking at seven, uh, 7 to 10 in Hebrews, and go ahead and turn to Hebrews 7 if you could, because all this section kind of comes from Hebrews 7. What we talked about there, he receives tithes from Abraham. So that, that was the, the first one there. And then, and some of these are kind of the English, you know, out of the ESV. So you could maybe come up with a different word to use, but um, do your best. Um, these dashes there correspond to the, the uh, number of letters that I'm going for. Um, what, what is, and these are all ways in which this priesthood of Melchizedek is better than the, the Levitical priesthood, right? So the first thing is, hey, the old priesthood had to pay tithes to Melchizedek, so there's a sense even in that of, of a greater one that this is associated with. Um, what do we see in uh, 7, 16 to 19, that second one there? He what forever? Yes, he lives forever. Why does that matter? Yeah, and we're going to get to that in the last one. So don't get, don't don't jump on that too much. But that's part of. But but the fact that whether human or not, I guess, I, I don't know that you can distinguish those two. But the fact that he lives forever, how does that give him a better priesthood? Yeah. A dead priest is not really the most effective priest, is he? Right? Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah, he always lives to intercede. That's definitely kind of the, the sense of this here. He's living forever and doing that, that intercession. Which also, I think, has in it a you know, the, um, the efficacy of his sacrifice as well that is, um, that is demonstrated of how the father kind of accepts this sacrifice for sure. Um, looking at the third one, his priesthood is what? Looking in verses 20 and 22. Yes? Oath, very good. It's by oath. Um, as opposed to what? What did it say there? What, what's the oath contrasted to? I believe it was a physical descent, right? Um, so this idea that there's this oath from God, you know, that, uh, and so this, again, the specialness, the uniqueness of this priest, and we see that oath. Where does that oath come from? Which passage did I hear? Psalm 110. We're reading about the oath today. That's what the Hebrews author is calling up, right? He's looking back at Psalm 110, and he's seeing this oath, and he's investing that with all kinds of meaning. So we should, too. Um, 
His ministry is what? Yeah, permanent. Not, 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 not permanent. I think I can't remember how the ESV words it there. But yeah, that was my, spinning that into a positive. It's, it's a permanent ministry. Um, and then to Rob's point, this oath appoints what, according to Hebrews 7, 28? A son. Rob, did you want to expand on that? No. But again, think back to that, um, you know, Psalm 2, that um, son of man, Daniel 7, this um, high and lifted up one who we know is the son of God, um, he is is the priest and obviously far uh, greater than a a mere man that would descend uh, through the Levitical priesthood, and this is our priest. And we have that promise here in in, um, verse 4 of of our passage. Okay, with our remaining just like four minutes or so, let's look briefly at uh, 5 through 7. And really, I wanted to focus on those first two sections. So, um, But but what do we see here as far as a, a, a picture of of the rain. We've talked about this a bit from some of the, some of the other descriptions, but what do you see in five through seven? Anything stand out to you? First off, maybe we we'll say, what are kind of to uh, the pastor's um, way of uh, kind of breaking down Psalms and you look at images and things like that uh, that are there. What do, you, what do you see of those kinds of, what kind of verbal images do we have in verses five through seven about this rain? Warfare, yeah, it's a very, warfare type of thing. I wrote down in my notes, there's a lot of corpses. (laughs) Um, Shattering of kings. A king uh, in the field pursuing uh, the enemies of God. Contrasted from some of what you see earlier in the psalm. Right? What did we see at the beginning of the psalm? Where is the Messiah? Yeah, he's there at the right hand of God. Um, so um, the, uh, some of the commenters, I thought, who kind of talked through these differences are essentially saying that's a word picture at the beginning. This is a word picture at the end. It's very clearly talking about different word pictures. So trying to, to figure out like where Christ is throughout the psalm as far as right hand and then somewhere else, that, that's not the intention. It's very clear from the author that he's using different um, kind of word pictures of where the Messiah is now in this kind of uh, pursuing enemies uh, type of picture, whereas before from this, this reigning at the, the right hand, um, trying to describe his reign in different ways um, and, and different pictures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. I did not do a chiatic uh, analysis of this passage, but that's a, at least a good kind of intro thought of, of how, you know, if there is something like that intended here, um, you know, how you might go about it. That's great. Um, okay. So what, 
what does this apply to then? If all of a sudden we're seeing, we talk about the right hand of God rule, and now we're seeing this pursuing of enemies kind of in a field, corpses, what is, what is this referring to? Yeah, and I think this idea of pursuit um, and, and really should be for the, the kids' corner, if you guys, if any of the younger kids looked on the back of their print, there's a way where you could, without drawing the Messiah, Messiah draw what his enemies look like. I don't know if any of the kids did that already. If you haven't done it, do you have any thoughts? What do you think this Messiah's enemies would look like? How would you describe them? Any thoughts from any of the kids? Any uh, older kids, like over 20 or 30, have any? <laughs> what would his enemies look like? I, I, you know, I was thinking terror, right? There, this is a, a terror. If you're the enemy of this Messiah, um, <laughs> you know, there's terror struck, right? Um, and so this is, again, he is reigning now. And I think this is the sense today um, that there should be and that, that uh, Christ is doing this today. Um, I didn't prepare a whole, you know, uh, you could have a whole lesson on, on what that looks like, how, you know, and you look over the, the last 2,000 years, um, how that uh, pans out. But that's the promise, right, that he is reigning now. There's not this sense of he's going, he's ascending to the Father, and just sitting there doing nothing in the sense of it's a meaningless thing until the, until the end, right? That is not the sense at all from this passage from the New Testament. But it's also, um, well, I guess before I say but what it's also is, one, one uh, thing that just came to my mind as I was, like, do, doing this prep is we... we had gone to the city in Croatia called Split, where Diocletian, the, the whole old, old town of, uh, of Split is poured into uh, the Emperor Diocletian's um, retirement palace, this ancient retirement palace. And um, in his, in, in Di, you know, and we know that Diocletian um, was a, you know, uh, tortured and pursued and persecuted Christians. But in his tomb, Diocletian's tomb, is a cathedral today. We have no clue where Diocletian's body is. There's all kinds of Christian saints buried in Diocletian's tomb. And I just thought that was a fascinating, a fascinating picture of these enemies of Christ that are, that are uh, subsequently being, uh, being put under uh, his feet. And I think because we live in this uh, time of the progressive, um, uh, you know, ruling in the midst of the enemies, we perhaps don't take um, stock of the actual rule that's in the past um, because there's such a, a rule that's yet to be done. Um, and I think particularly this day, and this is what we'll end with here, um, points to the final judgment, um, this, kind of, this kind of description here. And um, you see that, I liked Calvin's commenting, it's a little bit longer quote, but I'm gonna read that and then we'll end with this, uh, he will drink by the brook uh, from the brook, by the way, which I 
which is like, how does, how does it end with that? What is, what is that? And I like Calvin's description that kind of brings these things together. Um, he said, the similitude seems, again, for this, um, he will drink by, uh, from the brook by the way, the similitude seems rather to be drawn from the conduct of brave and powerful generals who, when in hot pursuit of the enemy, do not suffer themselves to be diverted from their purpose by attending to luxuries, but without kneeling down are content to quench their thirst by drinking of the stream which they are passing. It therefore appears to me that David figuratively attributes military prowess to Christ, declaring that he would not take time to refresh himself, but would hastily drink of the river which might come in his way. This is designed to strike his enemies with terror, intimating to them the rapid approach of the impending destruction. Should anyone be disposed to ask, where then is that spirit of meekness and gentleness with which the scriptures elsewhere inform us he shall be endued? I answer that, as a shepherd is gentle towards his flock, but fierce and formidable towards wolves and thieves, in like manner Christ is kind and gentle towards those who commit themselves to his care, while they who willfully and obstinately reject his yoke shall feel with what awful and terrible power he is armed. In Psalm 2.9, we, we saw that he had in his hand an iron scepter by which he will beat down all the obduracy of his enemies. And accordingly, he is here said to assume the aspect of cruelty with the view of taking vengeance upon them. Wherefore, it becomes us carefully to refrain from provoking his wrath against us by a stiff-necked and rebellious spirit when he is tenderly and sweetly inviting us to come to him. So I thought that was a good way to end um, an explanation of uh, the, the psalm there from Calvin. Um, and we're out of time, so I won't ask if there's any fi final uh, comments. So let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for uh, not only the picture that we, we see here of this amazing rule of Christ and the continued progressive rule uh, and the final judgment of Christ, but also the promises, the promise of a priesthood, which we so desperately need, the promise of uh, destroying um, your enemies, which are our enemies as well, particularly uh, culminating in the destruction of death itself. And um, we pray that your reign would grow. We pray that you would hasten the, the day when all your enemies are brought under your feet. And we ask that uh, knowledge of you as the currently reigning one would grow throughout all the earth and that your name would be great. And um, we uh, pray for your continued blessings, even, even in doing this as we have our worship service now, that uh, your, your kingdom would grow and that you would be glorified. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.